Hi everybody, welcome back to Crime Convos, where every week we discuss a new true crime case. Before we start anything, just a quick apology that we didn't upload last week. Um, Things got a little away from us, we had some technical difficulties and so on, and this week, this weekend was Thanksgiving, so it's been busy. Thanksgiving here in Canada, at least. So, happy Thanksgiving, if you're from Canada. (laughs) But we're back on track. Um, so back recording another one this week we're doing Gary Ridgeway which is better known as the Green River Killer Riley's been super excited about this one because he actually knows a little bit about this this killer the last couple he hasn't known anything so maybe you'll have a comment or two possibly we'll see you might actually have some insight on this one I wouldn't go that far yeah well we'll see I guess another exciting thing is we got an iPad this week so I can actually see what I'm reading. So hopefully I won't stumble over. And squinting your eyes at the scripts and everything. Yeah. Your yeah. girl can't see shit. <laughs> but besides that, anything else exciting happening besides us fumbling this from the get-go? Uh, no. No, I think that's everything. That's about it. All right. All right. Well, if you're ready. Let's do it. Okay, so Gary Ridgway was born on February 18th, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah, the second of three sons to Marion Thomas Ridgway. Like many others, his home was troubled. His dad would take him out on drives and point out all the sex workers on the street and he would like tell them like, they're horrible, disgusting, scum of the earth. I don't know who the hell does that. Well, it's just really weird. Clearly a great father. Mm, maybe not. Yeah, but he would also leave Gary alone in the car and would go like pay these women for sex. So was basically it's a bit like of a double standard. Yeah, so basically was like they suck and they're nothing. But if you got the money, you know, basically pay them, have sex, get rid of them. That's it. Right. Okay. So Gary also had a bedwetting problem until the age of about thirteen. It's not young. No, a little old, a little bit too old. But every time he had this incident, his mother would take him into the bathroom and clean him up, you like using like wet cloths and stuff, and like wiping off his privates, like everything. Um. Yeah. Kinda. Until thirteen years old. That's a little. Yeah. No. That's 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 old. That's a little too old. I don't know about that one. She also was would wear like a really like revealing robe herself. Oh. I don't know if it was like a seduction thing on her point or what but just not not a good memory that any kid wants i don't think Uh, no no definitely not so his mom also didn't dress or act like the other moms she wore skin tight clothing that showed off her figure short shorts tight mini skirts tops that showed off her stomach and cleavage and she was known to be like extremely flirty with everyone now nowadays people would say you know, she's just being friendly or it's her body. She can dress however she wants, which is true. But in the 50s or the 60s, this was not the case. Yeah, it's kind of odd. Yeah, you know, moms were reserved, respectful, usually quiet. But all of this was different for Gary. And so it confused him. So he had a confusing mix of emotions towards his mother. He had sexual attraction towards her, but also a hatred towards her as well because she was so attention seeking. So everyone in the neighborhood like knew like, Gary's mom, you know, so he actually even claimed later that he even fantasized about killing her pretty frequently. Oh, that's uh, not normal. Mm -hmm. So I think like the common thing for a psychopath is like if you're torturing or killing animals or thinking about killing your parents, you're 
gonna do some bad stuff later. Yeah. So when he was 16, he had his first taste of violent crime. He lured a six-year-old boy to the woods, just a random guy, and stabbed him in the stomach. He then removed the knife and wiped off the blood on the little boy's shirt. So, like, leaned over and wiped it on his shirt and just left him there. What the hell? Didn't even make sure he died or didn't even, like, stab him repeatedly or do anything else. He just stabbed him, wiped the knife off, and then left. Um, all right. And when he was later asked about this in life, he said he just wanted to know what it was like to kill someone. But he survived, so didn't really succeed. But... It was after a life or death surgery for this little boy. He has like a foot long scar on his stomach now. Oh, wow. Because he, I guess he stabbed him in a good enough spot that left him in a pretty dangerous situation. And the parents even like alerted the police, but Gary never got caught for it at all. How does somebody just get away with like, yeah, that's a dumb question. Yeah. People get (laughs) away with. They get away with a lot worse. But I mean, you know, a teenager stabbing a, a child. You'd think that that wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, be easy to hide. No, definitely get not. Get away with. But he did. So after graduating from school a year late, Gary married his high school girlfriend, 19-year-old Claudia Craig, in 1970. He quickly joined the United States Navy, and he went off to Vietnam, where he did actually see combat. So it is stated that he possibly also had PTSD. Okay. While he was away, um, he often had sex with sex workers and even contracted gonorrhea and chlamydia. Not ideal. When he did return from war, he and Claudia quickly divorced because Claudia also revealed that she was also cheating on him while he was gone. So he did try to get back with Claudia later in life, but she rejected him. And later, anytime anyone asked him about Claudia, whether it was police later in interviews or friends or family or anything, he just called her a whore. Oh. And was just like, she's a piece of shit because she rejected getting back together with him. Petty. Yeah. He then married his second wife, Marsha Brown, in 1973, with whom he had a son, Matthew. During this marriage, he actually became extremely religious and found God. He would read the Bible aloud at home, at work, and actually cry most times after reading it. He was so moved by it. He would go door to door in his neighborhood, spreading the word of God. And yet his sexual needs were still very much alive. He would demand sex multiple times a day from Marsha, like... Oh, up wow. to 10. Up to 10? Yeah. Ooh, and no. if she said no, he would basically choke her until she agreed. That's messed up. And it wasn't just that. It was like, I want, like, he wanted to have sex outside in the woods or in a very public, high traffic area. And he actually sometimes even took her to spots where he would later in his killing career leave many of his bodies oh that's just messed up yeah so much like his father before him he had a fixation with sex workers he would complain about them being in his neighborhood and having to see them every day and yet would pay for their services but unlike many who would just go to a motel room with sex workers gary wanted to go elsewhere he usually invited these women back to his house and if they denied going home with him he would drive them out to a secluded area in the forest where he had a pickup truck set up with a canopy at the back, like over like the cab of it. Almost like a tent sort of? Yeah, to okay. give them more room and more privacy in the woods where there isn't a lot of people anyway, but... Also, I don't know if I'd be too down to go into the woods with 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he's like, I want to bring you to my house. No, I don't go to people's houses that I don't know for sex. Okay, I want to take you to a broken down truck I have out in the woods. That sounds much yeah, better. Yeah, right up my alley. Yeah, yeah let's go. No. Hop on in, start the car. Now, normally girls would not accept this from men, like we we're saying right now, <laughs> but Gary was trustworthy. He was very, very friendly and very nice. And he actually used his son, Matthew, as like a technique to get them to trust him more so he would show them pictures of his son like when they were just chit-chatting at first being like oh i have a son this is him and actually at one point he actually had matthew in the car with him when he picked up a girl but then dropped him off at home before getting to business but they would all think oh he has a son he's really nice he's friendly looking looks like a decent guy and so they just thought he couldn't possibly be a threat or a danger but they were very, very wrong. Between 1980 and 1990, it is speculated that Gary murdered over 70 women. 70. 70. 70. That's a... Yeah. Reporting later that he killed so many, he actually lost count. So it's still to this day unknown what the actual amount is. And was it all in like one specific area? It was all mostly in, we'll get to that, um, it was all mostly in the same area except maybe one or two, but we'll get there. Okay. So most of the murders took place between 1982 and 1984. The victims were always sex workers, hitchhikers, or runaways. Basically, he would go looking for a woman who wouldn't have people looking for her. So he could get away with it, No, like no family to try and track them down and so on but he was wrong about that too because unfortunately even though they were sex workers they still had families yeah. you know sometimes like you know sex workers like they just need the money you know yep. so many family members were out there trying to find their daughters wives sisters friends whoever so he would take these women like i said to his house or his fancy truck with the canopy and they would engage in sex and it would start how it does for almost everybody you know some foreplay oral sex and then he would tell these girls that he would finish faster and it would be over sooner if he were in a position where he was behind them so you know i'm sure they you know want their money and want to go yeah so they would agree and once he would climax he would actually reach over and put these women into chokeholds and pull back as hard as he could basically until they stopped moving and were dead so oh he strangled God. everybody yeah he then would dump their bodies in wooded areas or into the Green River, getting him the name the Green River Killer, and sometimes would dump more than one woman in a spot, sometimes up to five women in one area, and sometimes even like posing them in sexual positions alone or with each other. What? Yeah. And he would just leave them like garbage, like would just throw them, didn't care about them or anything like that. Um, and apparently he had killed about 20 to 30 women in his home. So the ones that did agree to go to his house, there's uh, about 20 to 30 of imagine them. Imagine being his wife finding this out. Like, oh, what the We'll get hell? there. We'll get there. When he dumped these bodies, he would leave gum, cigarette butts, um, like notes, other people's handwriting to throw off the police, basically, because there would be so many different pieces of evidence with several different sets of DNA they wouldn't know where to narrow it down. Yeah. So, you know, a serial killer, horrible guy, but smart. He was he was playing it smart, I find. You know. 
Um, and he, going back to what you asked earlier, he actually drove two bodies over state lines to throw the police off. But otherwise, they were all in the same area. I feel two out of 70 is probably not going to throw off the police too much. Well, you know, in some situations like this, the police tend to be kind of... Stupid. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a way to be nice about it. Hey, well, listen, we've done two of these so far, and... Um, the police have sucked in every single one. Yeah, so far, there have been no quality mm-hmm. policing. So Gary actually sometimes even returned to the deceased bodies to engage in necrophilia. Oh. And he actually stated later in an interview that it's not because he found it any more satisfying, but simply because they were dead and he wouldn't have to pay them. My dude, you're taking the money back after you kill them. (laughs) Well, I guess maybe he had sex with some sex workers and wouldn't kill them and would just, you know, a typical sex worker arrangement and would let them go. And then if he was like, I don't want to kill anyone today, but I don't want to pay anybody... I'll just go back to one of the other ones. Not a great thought process, but... Well, it wasn't my... (laughs) That might be his thought process. I don't know. (laughs) But that's what my guess is. Because, yes, if he killed them, he would just be taking the money back. But once they started to decompose, he would stop because it was gross. An interview that I watched, he literally is like... I would go back for sex, but once the flies and the maggots came and they started to kind of smell, I would stop having sex with them just because... So that's where he draws the line. Yeah, he literally... Not having sex with a dead body, apparently that's not gross, but... No, when they literally started to rot. And the way he says it is so weird, because it's not even like he's like, oh, they were living at one point, I killed them, I returned to their body to have sex. He just basically was like, oh, you know, something I have sex with. But as soon as... He literally went, blech, when describing them rotting. Oh my god. Like, bro, you're having sex with a dead body. (laughs) It's all blech. Yeah. (laughs) No part of that was not. No. So the first body in Gary's first victim was found in July of 1982. 16-year-old Wendy Caulfield. She was found in the Green River with her arm broken. And also in an interview when I watched that I watched later, he said something like, oh, yeah, I leaned on her arm and it snapped. Whatever. And he just like shrugs. Like, the way he describes... You guys should look up the interviews because the way he describes killing these women and the crimes that he committed, he's so... Like, he just talks about it like he's just talking about his work. Yeah, he just... Like, it seems oh, just like he day. talks about them as if they're things, not mm-hmm. human beings. Yeah, literally. And he's just like, oh, well, you know, I killed her and then put her body somewhere. I don't know. Like, he's so laid back and, like, there's no remorse. Yeah, he's describing like, it like how I lose like an extension cable. Like Yeah. So four more women were found a month after um, Wendy in August. Two of them with rocks inserted inside them to weigh them down in the water so they wouldn't float away. He had no better alternatives than... I guess not. All right. In the early 80s, the King County Sheriff's Office formed the Green River Task Force, who solely focused on catching the Green River Killer. That's all their job was. No other, like, cases taken. They were strictly after the Green River Killer. Two of the officers, actually being Robert Keppel and Dave Richert, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who interviewed Ted Bundy. Really? A handful of times. And actually even got Ted to help with catching gary does make sense yeah so he was really like 
helpful and he gave them a lot of tips and tricks and being like if this was me and so on and so forth and he actually told them at one point to stake out an area if they found a fresh grave or a fresh body to actually like stake it out overnight or for a couple days to see if this killer would come back for sex with the bodies i'm not sure if they did it or not he did tell them to but if they did i feel like they would have caught him faster because he he actually was doing that. that yeah but it's never said if they followed his advice or not but he did give some tips and everything that eventually led to him getting arrested okay and for a while it was actually believed that the killer could have been a police officer as well that was the the early early speculation yeah because because of how fast the bodies were showing up and how like you know they figured it was all from the same person because all of the attacks and murders and everything were the same they thought this is all from one person but they're showing up too frequently that it has to be someone who is either really really fast or really trustworthy that people are like oh of course i can go with this guy you know who feels more like who do you feel more safe with than a police officer Mm -hmm. you know like oh he's a cop man of the law he's not gonna kill me i'll go with him so they thought maybe it could have been a cop clearly wasn't but could have been but remember also how trustworthy gary was so they were right it was partially right it was so happening so fast because he was such a trustworthy person but not because he was a cop just because he was smart and manipulative (laughs) at one point they actually had a lead on gary as well in 1983, Mary Malvar was in a restaurant having lunch with her boyfriend. And at one point, her boyfriend got up, had to make a phone call. He excused himself. He walked away. And when he came back to the table, Mary was gone. So this being out of the character for Mary, he decided to get in his car and drive around looking for her to see if she was maybe walking somewhere or she was trying to walk home or something. Yeah. And he saw her get into a pickup truck with an older man. He followed the truck as long as he could, but he unfortunately lost them in traffic. And then he returned to Mary's family to inform them of what happened. So they all set out to find the truck and hopefully Mary along with it. And they eventually did find the truck parked outside of a house. So instead of knocking on the window and it potentially being a dangerous situation, they called the police and told them that Mary may be in the house and may be in danger. And the police showed up to the house and knocked on the door. And can you guess who answered? Gary Ridgway. Gary Ridgway. But he assured the police he was alone. There was no one in there with him. He didn't know who Mary was, didn't know what they were talking about, couldn't help them. And because there was no evidence against him, besides them being like, I'm pretty sure this is the truck, they can't go into his house. So they just accepted it and left. But unfortunately, Mary was in the house, no longer alive, unfortunately. He did admit later that he had scratches and cuts on his arm from Mary fighting him that he hid behind the door, like while opening the door and just kept his hand behind it because she fought him off so hard. And that later to hide it even more so his wife wouldn't question him or people at work wouldn't question him of why he had these scratches on him. He poured battery acid on his arm to burn himself. Oh my God. So they would scar over. So then he could just be like, oh, I just got into an accident at work. Yeah, that's commitment, but Jesus. Yeah, and he does claim that Mary fought the hardest and the longest out of every single girl he killed. That she's always stuck in his head because of how hard she fought to stay alive. Okay. He disposed of her body and did admit later that she was one of the girls he returned to to have sex with her body. Oh. The police eventually hired an FBI profiler to get some clues on who the killer could be. 
the profile was very, very average. Was They guessed middle-aged, Caucasian male, probably dark-haired, and possibly lives with his mother. I don't know why that was in there, but they said it. And the profile, the profiler, sorry, rather <laughs> said that he may also be the type to put himself into the investigation. Okay. So. Oh, so sort of like somebody that would show up at the police station and be like, oh, well, this is what I think happened or whatever. Yes. Or, yeah. So, but one thing that a lot of killers do do is they show up and they say, oh, like, I think I saw that person at a bar or something. Basically helping the police, but more so helping themselves to lead the police in the wrong direction. Right. And at this point, that is when Melvin Foster stepped into the picture. So Melvin Foster was a cab driver. He's known to have driven around some of the victims before their disappearances. And I've seen interviews of this guy. Very weird. Just a very... Very strange guy. Yes. It just gives us a, a really odd vibe. Like when he when he's being interviewed and stuff and he's aware that they're filming because there's a camera. He just kind of like stares at the camera and just kind of fades in and out of reality it looks like i don't know if he was like under the influence during interviews or what but he was just a very very weird guy so naturally i think because he was a weird man the police made him the number one suspect because he put himself into the case and he was weird and he was known to have seen the victims before their death so you know he put himself as a suspect obviously he was innocent and he said he was, but he was just a weirdo. So they suspected him and they kept an eye on him. So Melvin was placed under 24-hour surveillance for three months. So for three months, someone sat outside his house. People followed him everywhere to work. If And he was a cab driver, so people would follow him in the cab, make sure he picked up and dropped off girls, make sure he went home alone. Like 24 hours, someone watching you. That's crazy. That's like Big Brother That's stuff. nuts. <laughs> and obviously during that time nothing happened but during that time as well four more women went missing and were found dead so couldn't have been him they dropped him as a suspect gary was arrested in 1982 on prostitute charges and gave dna samples he at this point was a suspect of the green river murders but something about investigation is that dna can take months or even years to be processed like still or is this just yes back in the- still that's how they're still like some crimes are still getting solved to this day because they're just like oh new dna has resurfaced from a cold case 30 years ago like they're still processing stuff today it's unbelievable yeah but he gave his dna and at this point he had no evidence against against him and he had passed a lie detector test at the police station which actually later an analyst showed that he actually failed it just it was read wrong or i'm not too sure i don't know how to read a lie detector test fair enough fair enough. but i think just common knowledge among true crime people is that don't take a lie detector test if you're guilty if you're innocent anything yeah don't take that shit don't take a guilt a lie detector test you are not required to if anyone says you have to take this test they're lying don't do it especially if you're innocent because a lot of the time people fail it because of nerves not because of guilt nerves but nervous that like oh my god i'm a suspect and they fail so don't do it (laughs) 
so anyways, he took a D. There's your PSA moving on. (laughs) Yeah. Took a lie detector (laughs) test. You know, just got my rant over the day. (laughs) Took a lie detector test, gave his DNA. They had nothing else on him. They sent him home. So Gary then married his third wife, Judith Mawson. In 1988, whom he met at a Parents Without Partners group. Judith had two daughters that became Gary's stepdaughters. After he married Judith, the bodies discovered actually reduced severely. Gary went from disposing like one, two, three bodies a month to only killing three women between the years of being married to Judith and when he was arrested. Really? Yeah. On his locker at work, he actually carved into the metal door NKDK, which stood for no kill, don't kill, which he said reminded him every day when he looked at his locker of like how much he had at stake and what he could lose if he killed anybody. So since, you know, Gary had calmed down basically and wasn't acting all crazy, the bodies and the missing women stopped happening. Right. So basically they thought either... The police thought either this killer had moved on to a different state or a different country or died or something. So the Green River Task Force was canceled, like dispersed. They stopped. Judith later said in an interview that even though she had no idea of the murders and no idea of like him doing this, that she when she found out, she actually felt like she did good, like did some good for yeah, the world. for sure. Like she kept him at bay and he truly loved her, that she saved lives. And she said... I just think that if I didn't marry him and he didn't love me and keep himself at bay, how many more women would have fallen victim to him? Yeah, this lady sounds like a saint. Which I think is just like the best way to look at that situation. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, you drive yourself insane if you looked at it like I married a serial killer. Yeah, so (laughs) I think just trying to find any little bit of light in that situation. Yeah. Um, But one thing that made me severely uncomfortable that she said in an interview is after he was arrested and pled guilty and everything, she then realized and was informed that she slept, like you said earlier, slept on the bed where Gary had murdered over 20 women. Yeah. Your own bed. I don't know about that one. Your own bed, man. Yeah, I... I, uh... That just gives me, like, the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, no. It's like, imagine finding, like, a bed in the dumpster. And then finding out that that that's the bed you've been sleeping on for however long, you know? Yeah. Gross. Ugh. Gross. I would never take a bed from a dumpster. No, but I was, you know. <laughs> okay. So going back to when Gary had given DNA in 1982. So 1982. Right. Those samples were finally processed 14 years later in 2001. Oh, my. So it took them 14 years to process his DNA. And it came How back. How is there not a faster way to do that? That's still mind-boggling to Technology me. is still coming out and everything. I don't know. But it came back with a match, obviously, linking him to four murders 20 years earlier. The saliva DNA he gave matched traces of other DNA left in the victims. Marsha Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Carol Ann Christensen... And the DNA was still in their bodies upon discovery. Now, normally, it would have been gone by the time their bodies were found, unless it was found, like, within, like, the hour or so. Yeah. But remember, Gary stuck rocks up them to hold them down in the water. So he basically, like, put a plug (laughs) 
to keep any DNA <laughs> oh, from leaving. So he basically got himself caught. He was smart. He and did he became more an idiot. work than the cops did, basically. <laughs> but this was enough to warrant and lead to Gary's arrest on November 30th of 2001. Good. So Gary pled innocent, innocent, sorry, for years. Okay. He didn't know of any of the crimes. He didn't know any of these girls. I could not be capable of such things. Me? I have a family. He didn't do anything. Uh, huh. When interrogators came in to interview him, he would like greet them as friends. How are, How's your family? How's work? Oh my God, the mattress in my cell. It's so comfortable. Like he was so calm and chill and didn't care about anything. And at no point, no one said at any point before he like admitted he was guilty later at any point did they think oh i've got him like he's about to crack right like he was so laid back and was like nah wasn't me and whenever judith came to visit him in prison he cried and cried and told her the same things i didn't do this i'm innocent it wasn't me and she believed him which i can understand you know you marry someone you love them you think you know them better than anyone yeah how could you, you ever want think to believe they're innocent yeah how could you ever think that they were capable of something like that like if you got arrested and murdered people and i visited you in jail and you were like it wasn't me you know me i'd be like yeah i do you know so i get where she's coming from but like also he was extremely like we've said numerous times manipulative right yeah, he could convince yeah. anyone of anything i'm sure now flash forward a couple years and interrogators are entering an interview room to talk to Gary, you know, still working on trying to get him to crack. And they came in smiling or laughing about a conversation they were wrapping up that they started before. And immediately, Gary stands up and he says, you won't be smiling once I'm done talking with you. I've been lying to you. I've been manipulating you. I did it. I killed those women. Does so he explain why he had such a change of heart? Yes. Now he was, yeah, so he was pleading innocent for years and wasn't budging. And why all of a sudden was he telling the truth? Simple. Prosecutors were fighting for the death penalty and he didn't want to die. Okay. So he made a deal. He would plead guilty and tell the task force anything and everything they wanted to know in exchange for his life. And it worked. Gary told them about all the women he killed. He took them out to the woods and led them to wooded areas where he had dumped bodies, even actually leading them to a couple bodies that had not yet been discovered. Really? Yeah. When asked later why the prosecutors agreed to this and didn't go for the death penalty because, you know, he killed 70 women. It was, again, simple. While Gary had done horrible things and deserved the death penalty and killed over 70 women, that's 70 families that wouldn't have had closure yeah so they think that the information that they got from gary to give these families closure so they weren't up at night wondering what happened even though it was the worst thing that could have been you yeah, know it's making you know. the best out of a horrible situation yeah they deserved it more yeah. than fighting for the death penalty which they possibly may not have gotten yeah it was never a guarantee yeah in one of his interviews, he says that he was going for the kill count, didn't care about these girls, he wanted to kill as many as he possibly could, how he wanted to reach 100 and wanted to be the best serial killer out there. The prosecutor's then like, where would you rate yourself on like the scale? You know, and he's like, oh, number one serial killer in America. I'm the best, for sure. <sighs> yeah. Above Ted Bundy, above Jeffrey Dahmer, I'm the best one there is. Okay, Gary. So Gary admitting 
admitted also to lighting one of his victims' hair on fire, Linda Rules, after murdering her because he wanted to continue hurting her even though she was already dead. What? Mm -hmm. So these are just like little details that he admitted while during his confession because he was confessing for like four days. Oh my God. They ask so many details and locations and details of what happened what did they look like what was their name where'd you find them where'd you leave them and so on that it takes a long time to confess to all these things yeah he cried when discussing carol ann christensen one of the victims that he had left dna in because he actually dated her for a little while she wasn't a sex worker really yeah it was someone that he was in a relationship with he slept at her house frequently even had a like somewhat close relationship with carol's daughter who was around five or six ish okay And then one day when they were having sex, she told him she needed to leave soon because she had to get to work on time and she needed him to hurry up. So she said, hurry up, I have to go. And what was his response? He killed her. That was just for that. Yeah. So when he's crying in this interview talking about her, he says that she hurt his feelings for not having time for him. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. So when Carol's body was actually discovered earlier, she was found with a very weird list, a sausage, a fish, a bottle of wine, and a bag over her head. What? Yeah. So people, the police actually didn't think this was the same killer at first because he had never left them with items. And then when he admitted to it and they said, why did you do that so differently than what you normally did? He said he symbolized it as throwing out things he no longer needed, like garbage, including Carol. Oh, my God. So he went to dump her body and was like, I'll take a few other things that I have to throw out. <laughs> he led the police officers to the remains of 16-year-old Pammy Avent, and later, with his help and direction, they also discovered the remains of Mary Malvar, who we talked about, and another girl named April um, Buttram in September of 2003. Okay. On December 18, 2003, the judge sentenced Gary to 48 life sentences with no possibility of parole. He was on he was sentenced to an additional 10 years for tampering with evidence for every victim as well, because he always left stuff. Right. Yeah. So totaling up to an extra 480 years. Oh my God. On top of his life sentences. And an average life sentence is about 25 years. So 25 times 48 plus 480. I'm bad at math. I'm not going to do it. A long time. Okay. He's in Safe jail. Safe to the... say he will uh, not be no. leaving anytime He's in soon. there. And another part of his plea agreement was that he would also plead guilty to any and all future cases where his confession could be confirmed by reliable evidence. So basically, if they find another body in 10 years that's in the nearby area where Gary would dump bodies and it matched his methods and potentially had DNA, or even if it didn't have DNA, he would plead guilty no matter what. Okay. So if someone else killed someone and left the body there but did it in the same way that Gary did, he's automatically guilty. That seems like a flaw in the system there, but I mean... Yeah, well, I don't think anyone's going to do that, but please don't get any ideas from this podcast. (laughs) But... We are not condoning uh, no, copycats yeah, please here. Don't, please don't copycat kill, and please don't, please don't kill. Just don't be a good person. Second PSA of the of the day. <laughs> yeah, lots of lots of good tips today. <laughs> we were one week off, so like you know, getting them all out now. After his sentencing was done, he confessed in an interview that he had killed at least seventy one girls. So he was charged for forty eight 
after he was sentenced and he was like, okay, I got charged for 48. By the way, I killed 71. What a dick. Yeah. So basically he got, he's saying that he got away with an extra like 20 or so. And this, whether it's true, if he killed that many, many, this is the most any serial killer has admitted to murdering in U.S. history. So 48 families to come up and speak to Gary, much of it being sadness anger understandably a lot of people cried when speaking to him or showed severe aggression towards him having to be held back from by guards in the courtroom yeah. telling him that they hoped he suffered in prison the same way that their family members suffered and throughout the entire time that these families are talking to him he's looking at them and he's listening he's not ignoring them but he has no emotion at all He's just sitting there and like sh like nodding his head, agreeing with them as if he's in like a lecture at school, like just nothing. He doesn't like smile like some psychopaths do. He doesn't cry, nothing, doesn't care. The only time he did show emotion though was when the father of Linda Rule came up to speak and he looks like the sweetest guy I've ever seen. He's this big guy with like long white hair and a big white puffy beard and he's wearing like rainbow suspenders. He's just an awesome looking great guy. And he says to Gary that like he hears a lot of anger coming from people and he senses the anger and a lot of sadness in the room, which is all justified. But the one thing he hadn't heard from anyone is forgiveness. And God always tells him that everyone deserves forgiveness. So he forgives Gary for what he did. And Gary starts sobbing because as we know, he's a religious guy. Yeah. So that got him. And then also, the other instance he cried was when the daughter of Carol Christensen that we talked about came up to speak because he remembered her as this little five, six-year-old girl, but she was like 20 now. And she's talking to him, telling him how, like, you know, I ate breakfast with you, like, you knew me, you knew my mom, and you took my mom away. And so he cried for that. And for, like, the littlest bit of a moment, you're like this is a human being and then it all goes away when the next person comes up because uh, he wipes yeah. his tears away and he's just like okay i'm back to not giving a shit out of the full list of victims the green river task force assembled there were six victims left over that gary was suspected of killing but was not charged with since they did not have enough evidence and there were six other victims not on the task force list just of missing people and found bodies that Gary is also suspected of killing, but again, not, not charged. sufficient evidence. Yeah, not charged with due to lack of evidence. Yeah. Over the years, many remains have been discovered at the sites, like too many for me to even put in. Okay. That led in, that Gary had led investigators to, or that people had found and reported. And as in his plea bargain, he pled guilty to. Okay. And there are still many missing girls out there or girls that he admitted to murdering where the remains have not been found. And as of right now, Gary Ridgway is 72 years old and is incarcerated at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington, still living out his days. Okay. And that's the story. What a psychopath. Yeah, so that's uh, the highest kill count that we've had so far. And the highest admitting count that we've had so far. Yeah. Any comments, questions, concerns on your part? Uh, n no. Uh, not, uh, not a one. <laughs> not one you feel good with how it ended? I mean, no, not particularly. 
somebody kills so many people, you don't really feel too good about that. But I mean, but you knew some of that one. I did. Yeah, you I watched did. some of some documentaries with me when I did research for this one. Uh, yep. Yes. So you feel more in the in the loop this time around. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah? I'd say I do. Yeah. Maybe you'll write the script for the next one. Uh, we'll see about that. <laughs> we'll see. Someone message me on Instagram if you want Riley to write a script. Okay. <laughs> but anyways, we appreciate you guys listening. Again, apologies that we didn't post last week. We're going to try to keep more on top of it, maybe pre-record. So if we run into technical problems again, we have something to fall back on. <laughs> but besides that, thank you for listening. Make sure to like the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Go follow us on social media. Everything will be in the description of the episode, including case sources if you want to read or watch any documentaries that we did for research. But besides that, we'll see you next time. Yep. Bye. Bye.